So let's get into this. We're doing the Rediscovering and Restoring Biblical Christianity series. I am going to try to get do this quickly. Uh, you know, Isaiah 58, 12 is one of the great theme verses of this series. Acts 3, 19, there's others. It's kind of thing verses of this series. Uh, Isaiah 2, 1 through 4, Micah, so forth. They're all listed there at the top. Uh, Roman numeral 1 and through 4 are reviews of what we've accomplished so far. Uh, two or three weeks ago, whenever we did uh, Emphasis 5a, we focused on the idea of restoring all Scripture as the Word of God. So our thesis is basically this. In modern evangelicalism, we give more lip service to being Bible-believing than probably any Christians ever have, ever, in the history of the church. Uh, in, in essence, if you wanted to define what an evangelical Christian would be, you'd probably start with the idea that the Bible is inerrant and infallible, and that it's completely the Word of God, and it's the only uh, rule for epistemology, for, uh, for morality, for all of our faith and practice. But while, like in the day of Jesus, Jesus said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as their doctrines the doctrines of men, Yet they claim to be very fundamentalist in their approach to Scripture. That was the essence of what the Pharisees were about. And Jesus is basically saying they don't really do that. They really teach the doctrines of men. And if you're not familiar with it, Matthew 15, Jesus gives us a great example of that inciting what I would call traditionalism rather than the proper use of biblical tradition because he tells the thing of, Uh, The Bible says to honor your father and mother, but the Pharisees taught that if you gave all your money to the church and therefore neglecting your responsibilities to take care of your parents in their old age, uh, that was called Corbin and that was something supposed to be great and and wonderful. And, uh, you know, we teach tithing, but you you should also give offerings above your tithes to the Christian causes you believe in but not at the cost of uh, not being able to afford your kids, send your kids to the best schools or take care of your mother in her old age or any other responsibility God's given you. As a, you know, the Bible says that whoever does not provide for his own household is actually worse than an unbeliever and denied the faith. You know, one of our single households, I'm told, is, is sort of known for uh, a lot of the guys pay more than is required for their groceries so they can kind of bless the other guys. And uh, that's proper. You know, like doing someone else's chores when you're instead of like, the minimum, like, that's not my job, I, you know. <laughs> but if, if you can, uh, you know, graciously do the other person's job or uh, make, make life easier for someone else, um, you know, this past week, Caleb Trimbach mowed my lawn, and he didn't charge me. And uh, thank you, Caleb. And, you know, stuff like that, you may say, well, gee, I'm being selfish. But stuff like that enables me to take a much smaller salary, which enables uh, 
us to do a lot more as a church. By the way, I, I keep, uh, I, I promised I wouldn't get off subject, but I got to get off subject on this. I was, I was really, uh, I can almost hear the Lord speaking to me and saying, oh, thou of little faith. I really thought when this COVID thing started, because we didn't have the reminder of taking an offering during the week that our tithes and offerings would go down a lot, and they didn't. And uh, people have been very faithful to mail them in. Uh, several people write a little note with it, and uh, that started with Liz Brewer, and then I encourage everyone to do it, and, and uh, the Burks picked up on it and so forth. So now I get nice two or three, four little letters every week that are half a page or a page or whatever, letting you know what's going on. So that's neat. Um, but, uh, you know, this past week we were actually, we've tried to pay one or $2,000 extra a month on the mortgage. Our mortgage is, uh, two years old now. And it started at, I had the figure, hold on, I got it in here, man, I got three texts since we started today, since I started this message. Um, So let's see. Our original mortgage was $138,750. And we actually uh, normally only have one or two thousand a month, if that, to put extra on the mortgage. We were able to scrimp and save. And, and uh, we, uh, first of all, sent $2,000 to starving children in Bangladesh. The, the, uh, if you remember um, Albert and Mary that were here, they, uh, mo- all their churches have orphanages associated with them and schools for little kids. And the, because of the whole COVID thing, they actually were at a situation where uh, lots of the children had zero to eat. Like they went th- several days in a row with no food at all. And we were able to send $2,000 and uh, not, quite a few other churches got involved in that. I don't know the totals of what sent, what sent. But, you know, that's all on you. Thank you. And we actually paid $5,000 extra on the mortgage this past week. And so the mortgage is now for the first time below $100,000. We're at $99,573. So, and we have three more years to go. We're not on a pace to make it, but in three years, the rate becomes variable. And if we don't make it, you know, you'll, probably two years from now, We'll be talking as in both the elders and the leadership team and some of the key givers in the church I'll probably talk to about whether we want to make a push to, to try to make it. It's probably not that important. If we get it low enough, even if the rate goes up, then our payment won't go up much or anything. But so, we, you know, there's always other things like missions and stuff we don't want to rob from. So we'll, you know, and, and by the way, uh, you know, John Gray prays over the offering or whoever, but... One of the things we should pray at that time, and one of the things I would encourage you to pray for, is that the leadership team would would constantly have wisdom what to allocate the resources to. So uh, that's always, uh, you know, for instance, one of the things we do is uh, um, everyone uh, uh, that's, we have four paid staff, Three, three of the four ha- have work side jobs and so forth because we voluntarily take very small salaries. If you added up all four of our salaries together, it would equal what Andy Gearhart tells me would be one fair salary for, for one staff person. 
So, and, but all, you know, all four of the people make those kind of sacrifices, and I offset mine by Catherine working. Uh, <laughs> some of you don't have those options, but uh, every one of the, uh, the other three offset it by working second jobs and so forth. So, uh, and you know, the, so that with missions and, uh, you know, we're trying to stock India up with books and, and all that. We, you know, we could use a lot of wisdom about how to allocate the resources. All right, so let's get into this. We talked, again, our main emphasis on this, on emphasis five, is how to restore all scripture as the word of God. And we talked about how today uh, the church gives a lot of lip service to that, but there are actual philosophies and ideas, uh, whether you know it or not, when you read anything, you're bringing in a set of assumptions to the text. And so one of the greatest things about reading is not only to learn to read, read a lot, but it's actually to learn to read with more insight. And the way you learn to read with more insight is to examine and encourage some other people in your life to help you examine what are the paradigms of interpretation you're bringing to the text. So for instance, if all Western people are battling a worldview that's anti-supernatural. So we think things like speaking in tongues, casting out demons, raising the dead is something different or weird or something. And uh, the truth of the matter is, that's just our unbelief. We've been brainwashed in an anti-supernatural set of assumptions about reality. And so, and you can't help but bring that to the text. And so even though, for instance, that this church has a very high percentage of the people who are baptized in the Spirit and speak in tongues, we certainly don't have enough prophecy. We don't have enough healings. We don't have enough deliverances. We haven't made much progress toward a normal, everyday biblical Christianity. I, I often, uh, when I'm reading the book of Acts, uh, say, uh, I will use the phrase, a common everyday book of Acts type of miracle. Like we should, you know, people like uh, when, when uh, the church comes under persecution, Philip goes running for his life and he uh, ends up stopping in Samaria and preaching it and preaching. And it says the lame were walking and demons were coming out of many. And that kind of thing should, is just normal. But we've gotten used to going to churches where we don't expect that to happen at all. And that is actually abnormal. And it's subnormal. And so that's just one example, an anti-supernatural mindset that all of us, that's, I would say, that invo involves demonic spirits of unbelief and so forth. All of us are doing battle against that. And we have to, as a church humble ourselves, and, and just like the, thing, the racial thing we talked about, we have to admit, first and foremost, God, we're not where we should be. You know, I have a few testimonies I tell of people who were supernaturally healed in this church, but I wish I was choosing from 150 of them. 
which would be much closer to biblically normal for a group of 80 or 90 people. Because it's quite clear in the book of Acts that the five steps uh, that people took to start their Christian life in the first week or so not only include being, being baptized in the Spirit right at the beginning, but it included being delivered from demons and healed. And, uh, you know, I I'm, thank God for how much progress uh, Amber has led us into with the Sozo thing. And, of course, Daniel Williams is lear- learning that now, and uh, Emily Furlow, and, of course, Teresa is the, and, and Amber are the main two people. And Amber's going to speak about... Uh, uh, Sozo here, here sometime in the next couple of weeks as we're back. So we said when we came back. So uh, let me know when you're ready. Uh, but, but don't dilly-dally. Um, because uh, that involves emotional and mental and spiritual healings, which are normal. And they in Genesis 3, when, when Eve ate of the fruit, gave to her husband, that was the start of Sozo. <laughs> because people needed healing ever since then and reconciliation and they needed deliverance from um, you know illegal soul ties you know i i don't know if i don't think i want to do a show of hands but i i am so i am blessed by the number of people who've come to me and said that they they really began to understand uh, their need for breaking illegal soul ties and so forth in the sozos. Almost everybody is affected by an idea called illegal soul ties that very few people have actually dealt with, and that's something you should deal with the first week or so of being a Christian. And I, uh, that's probably usually an ongoing thing, but... Uh, you know, I, I uh, had some great deliverance in that respect. I remember on a 40-day on a fast I was doing in 2004 that had a lot to do with what God's done in our church from that point forward. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that helped me, I actually read a book my mother wrote in, in, as a tribute to her mother, my grandmother, and I reread a book my father wrote about his life and I was just mining those two sources to look at this, the whole topic of, of generational curses. And uh, that's one of the things that we deal with in both deliverance and sozos. And sozo gets you started with that idea. And that's huge. You do know why that um, a lot of Christians adopt children and then their hearts are broken when the children don't turn out that well sometimes because people don't understand that you're bringing in the generational curses of someone else's family heritage when you adopt. And you've got to pray over every child that's adopted for deliverance and the breaking of generational curses two or three times until, until it's kind of broken and cleansed and, and healed uh, in the first couple of years of that child's life. Very important and very misunderstood because, again, we have natural paradigms, and so they actually rip the heart out of the idea that all Scripture has been inspired by God because we don't think in terms of the whole Scripture 
because anti-supernatural glasses that we're wearing. So, you know, a paradigm or what you call hermeneutics, the science of how to study the Bible, you have sets of glasses in a sense. You know, when you put a, a pink set of uh, lenses in, you know, the, everything has a little bit of a rose hue. And that's true, like when you, have, when you have not really been set free by God to expect the supernatural, it colors everything you get out of the Bible so that you miss so much of its message. And we are going to actually be looking at, in the next coming, oh, 10 to 15 weeks, uh, various interpretive paradigms that cause us to reduce the message of Scripture, even though we claim we read all the Bible and believe all the Bible. But do we really? So we are going to be looking at that. But first, today's message, we're going to look at what Jesus has to say about all Scripture. So last week, again, or two, well, three weeks ago, the last message on this, we started with the idea that the sum of thy word is truth, remember, in 2 Timothy 3, 16, all Scripture is inspired by God. And so we're going to continue in that line today by looking at what Jesus had to say about the subject. First of all, Luke 16, 17. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away. Now think about that. Uh, something that's, that's quite biblically true is, is I don't know that heaven is going to actually exist as we think of it now forever. Uh, it's going to go through some sort of change. Certainly the earth, the scripture makes that very clear, the earth will pass away as we've known it. But those aren't easy things, right? If you know, if you know anything about the whole environmental move and uh, what do they call it, climate change and everything like that, to change the entire earth is not a small matter. So, you know, when it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away. That, like, if you just think about that for a little bit, that's a big statement. In other words, because it's not that easy for heaven and earth to pass away. It's easier for that than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Now, one of the uh, paradigms we're going to look at in coming weeks is an idea called antinomianism. And another text, unbelievable. Uh, so... Don't they watch the video, Cass? All right. Um, geez. So um, antinomianism is, is the source for legalism. And, and every Christian uh, movement, every Christian group, every Christian uh, stream, you might say, of thinking and practice in our day and age has various kinds of legalism. Associated that with that, we'll look at an idea called pietism, which is very, very rampant. And even members of our own church struggle with that a lot. And it causes our Christianity to be way less effective than it would be if we, if we could get rid of that because we'd be focused on more realistic things. We don't really think of Christianity as the 
thing that's supposed to change once and for all racism in the earth. Because we're concentrated on more spiritual things that sometimes end up with too much unreality. Legalism, I was just, I was just um, talking with some Christians this week and helping them with uh, a great deal of pain that was in a particular person's life because of the legalism they came from. And believe me, uh, one of the things that you minister to as a pastor many, many, many times is uh, people who are brought up in legalistic kinds of Christianity, uh, that causes a lot of inner wounds. A lot. Because it's not grace-based. And if it's not grace-based, it can't be walking in love. And, you know, there's many scriptural things that need to be restored in order for us to be grace-based with one another, such as um, Galatians 6, 1, looking to ourself, less, you know what, in other words, you, you can't minister to anyone if you don't realize that you're in worse shape than them before you start. To the degree, you know, I actually got one of the best compliments I ever got this week from someone who's not here today, they're on vacation. Uh, and uh, this couple said to me that, you know, um, some people in the effort to be gracious are so encouraging that they kind of poo-poo or minimize the, 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 the uh, danger of sin and how serious it is. And that happens. A lot of times people that are very mercy-oriented and, con- and encouraging and so forth will kind of, that's no, it's, you know, trying to, trying to, in the effort to try to be gracious, don't treat the sin as super, super serious. It's, it's a great offense against a holy God. You know, uh, the same God that, that uh, killed the sons of Korah, things like the earth opening up and swallowing people, that same God uh, is not just the God of the Old Testament. He's the God that killed Ananias and Sapphira. Do you know that if we, like Ananias and Sapphira, misrepresented the, the amount of money they had given to try to look more holy to everyone else than they really were? Do you know that if God did that in our church, we'd all be dead? <laughs> right? Is, has anyone never tried to look more spiritual than you actually are <laughs> to someone you're talking to? Has anybody never done that? Raise your hand if you've never done that. I didn't... <laughs> <laughs> I'm also alert. That was a pretty good one, Caleb. So, uh, it's easier for heaven and earth than one stroke of a letter. You know, like the, that's, that's just like crossing the T. To pass, uh, and, and, you know, frankly, antinomianism, which, which negates the whole effect of the law, is rampant in modern Christianity. In Matthew 5, Jesus discusses that same issue much more fully. He says, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. Do you know that because of certain paradigms, very few Christians today even read the law and the prophets? 
I ask a lot of people all the time that were raised in evangelical churches how much uh, emphasis was put on the Old Testament in your studies growing up, and usually only about 20% of the people I talk to say that they had a strong foundation in the Old Testament from the churches they were raised in. Right? A lot of, a lot of you were raised in, they were already, you know, your parents were Christians or you were raised in some sort of Christian fashion. Think about how much you knew the Old Testament in, that, in, in the former Christian culture you came from and how many messages came from, were about how to interpret the Old Testament. You know, I sometimes do a little thing that's meant to be a way of, of serving uh, someone when they come in, and I'll gear a few messages to help them start to see the difference between what Grace Christian Fellowship is trying to do. And, you know, when Amber first came, I did a series of messages on how to get more out of the Old Testament because that was very, one of the things she very much wanted to, to know. How to, because she, she was raised in a tradition that never emphasized the Old Testament very much. Is that, that correct, Neymar? So, um, do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Pleireo means to put into force, to make it accomplished. Do you know that God, Jesus didn't come so you could misinterpret Paul's statements about not being under law but being under grace. That wasn't his, Jesus' point was to help you misinterpret Paul uh, as is the teaching of the churches today. His grace actually causes you to fulfill the law. Because, you know, as for myself, big secret here, I've not actually murdered anyone ever, even though I've done a lot of sins. That was one I, I haven't actually ever murdered anyone. But in my heart, I murdered lots of people, including some of you. But, uh, and uh, some of you have murdered me in your heart. But, uh, but let's not deal with that one right now. Uh, uh, but what Jesus comes to do is take that out of your heart. You know, remember how he says, you are taught, thou shalt not murder. But I say to you, if you're even angry at your brother, you're guilty enough to go into the hell of fire. Wow. Anyone ever been angry at a brother or sister in the Lord? Don't tell me. I don't want to know. There are some areas where ignorance is bliss. That would probably be one of them. <laughs> For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, there's that statement again, not the smallest leather or stroke shall pass away from the law until 90% is accomplished, until I come and bail you out because 10%, wait, there's that nasty three-letter word again, all, is fulfilled it's all accomplished. Now, there's a difference between uh, imputed righteousness and imparted righteousness. And so on one level, all was fulfilled on the cross when he said, it is finished. The goal of the Christian life is to grow in sanctification and maturation 
where the gap between the fact that that's legally our, our status before God and to grow to where it's experientially our status before God. You know, people ask me, what do you, they call it, what are you doing? I'm trying to close the gap <laughs> between what the Bible says is true of us and what I'm actually experiencing. And, you know, when you get together with me and we go for a ride in the car, we go to Bob Evans, get a piece of pie, whatever uh, we do. Uh, usually it involves a restaurant, sitting around and talking and eating. Fresh is, uh, what is it, salad buffet. Um, I'm trying to help us close the gap between, you know, what we are called to be and what we're living. Does, does everybody see that if you, you know, think about it, you, we need to close the gap between what a Christian is, what the status of a Christian is, what is actually, a, you know, um, biblically true of your status before God and what, what your actual walk is and what your attitudes are and your motivations are, right? And if you're at all honest with yourself, the fact is, there's a lot of gap to be closed. That's called sanctification. That's the purpose of discipleship groups. That's the purpose of foundational books. That's the purpose of getting together to worship. And, and that's the purpose of confessing our sins is to be, you know, I, I, I really feel like uh, I haven't emphasized enough uh, that, you know, a lot of prayer needs to start with intercessory prayer, which needs to start with our confessing our sins before God. And especially like in households and stuff, like married households. Um, in fact, I, I um, was very much helped by Sydney and Melody about two weeks ago, and I want to I make that part of this. So they had us over for dinner, which... Uh, <laughs> Ironically, since the COVID thing happened, since we're supposed to be social distancing, my wife and I have actually had more people over for dinner than we've ever had in our church. We've been having people over for dinner about twice a week, and I've uh, been having a lot more movie parties and so, so forth. Uh, we're not very good at social distancing, I guess. But um, uh, it's... Uh, so Sydney and Melody turned the tables on us, and they had us over to their house for dinner. And after dinner, uh, Sydney said, uh, would you like to participate in our family devotions? And I thought, yeah, that'd be great. We'd love to participate in your family devotions. And so uh, we got to experience the, how they do family devotions. As, uh, how many nights a week do you guys do that, Sydney? About three, three or four? Okay, and... Um, so we, you know, got to sing some worship songs, uh, and uh, no one plays the piano or the guitar there, so they did it by videos, and, uh, and, and I'm normally a skeptic about that, uh, uh, but the, it worked really well, and we sang s some wonderful songs, and uh, then they had, uh, uh, Sydney had some meditations, they, they, um, use the the scripture readings for that week as the and so each each night they focus on a different scripture reading from the from the that Sunday scripture readings so that was cool and then uh 
uh, they had a time where everybody shared what God was doing in their life. And then we had a time of prayer. But here's what kind of helped me uh, a lot. I, the only other uh, family I've done that with is John and Emily Weiss. And they, you know, they have family devotions. They have a certain way of doing it. And, of course, uh, we have a book by Joel Beakey about that that we would encourage you as as a family to read. But I wanted to give the, us this idea for the next, uh, for 2020 and 21. I would love if every one of us made it a practice to uh, have someone else over and then let them participate in your family devotions the way you do it. Now, I happen to know... Uh, at least one single household and at least one married family who, do, who tends to do that in the morning before we work. And then a lot of people do it after dinner. But I don't care what, to, like if you uh, are one, ones that do it before work, you can still do it the same way, but just do it after dinner when you have, you know, Robbie and Abigail over, whoever you're having over. And... Uh, I think that would be really, really um, fruitful as a church because uh, it would be a little bit of cross-pollinization, you might say, in terms of how does this uh, single household do it for, or this married household do it. And I think that would be really, really healthy. And you might actually end up picking up an idea here or an idea there that you might want to discuss incorporating in, in your family's way of doing it. So we'll call that the Osborne Principle. Uh, <laughs> but I, I would really like to give that as an assignment to Grace Christian Fellowship for the rest of 2020 and in, in, in 2021. Try to at least once or twice a month, uh, probably if you're going to get anywhere, you probably need to do it at least twice a month, or some couples could do it weekly. Uh, have, have somebody over. And then let them participate in your family devotions the way you do it. And, uh, and if we get enough of that bouncing around, and single households can do that. You know, there are several single households that have uh, someone who plays uh, piano or guitar for, the, for their worship. And some of the married households, like Leah Gray plays, uh, like we have a meeting with a few couples on Wednesday nights, and Leah leads us in some worship songs first. So... Uh, so I'd encourage all of us to do that. Moving along. I know it's late, but this is worth it. Uh, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. That's pretty weighty if you think about that. And we actually have paradigms of scripture interpretation that are quite, uh, that are the heart and soul of what evangelical Christianity is all about today. That the point of them is to annul the least of the commandments, to, to, to annul the commandments, period. Uh, see Nathan or Stephen, if, if you have never read a book on the subject of theonomy versus antinomianism, uh, Joel McDermott's book, I read some of it. it he's, he's going for trying to be very simple and introductory, so that's a, probably a good one to start with, right? But um, 
Then there's more complicated ones like Rush Dooney's Institutes of Biblical Law, <laughs> three volumes. See Jeff Burks if you want to read that one. <laughs> that's Jeff. You could you probably have you read all three of those? That's usually you know Jeff reads a lot. Uh, but um, I I use those kind of books as reference material, not as reading the whole book from cover to cover because I'm a, a lightweight. Um, but if you don't know what antinomianism versus theonomy is, you're going to know that in weeks to come. But Jesus is basically teaching against that. Jesus. I hope, you know, like there's a reason why people like the words in red kind of Bibles. Now, on one level, I like those, but, on, but it's, on one level it's kind of silly because it's not any more the word of God than uh, what Joshua has to say. Right? On the other hand, what this teaching is about is what did Jesus say about not embracing ideas that take the heart out of all Scripture being inspired by God. That's what we're talking about today. John 5, 5:39 through 40, you search the Scriptures because you th- he's talking to the Pharisees. You think in them that you have eternal life, and it is they, what? does the they mean to? The scriptures that bear witness or testify would be another translation about me. Yet you refuse, that means you're unwilling. I like love in the Psalms when it says, my soul refused to be comforted. Various scripture tells us, tell us that people refuse to repent. And Jesus is saying, you say that you love the scriptures. The Pharisees were known for knowing every jot and tittle of Scripture. But Jesus is saying, you're wasting your time because you're reading them with paradigms that that push me out of them, and the whole point of them is me. That's what he's saying when he says, you're unwilling to come to me, uh, that that in me you might have life. Now, he is, is Jesus, when he says that you... Search the scriptures. Is he talking about Galatians? No. Why? Galatians wasn't written yet. He's talking about what what we call the Old Testament, which I think is better titled the Hebrew Scriptures, as you know. Because the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, began in Exodus chapter 19, which is 70 chapters into the Old Testament. And, the, and what we call the Old Testament actually has five, well, marriage is the seventh covenant, which is talked about in both the Old and New Testament, but uh, five of the major covenants of the Bible are in the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. And all five of them are very applicable to Christians today and very important for you to understand. You need to understand what the covenant of David is, for instance. You need to understand what the covenant of Noah is. You very much need to understand what the covenant to Adam was or what the dominion covenant or the creation covenant, you might call it. Now, when Jesus says that if you, are, if you come to him, you'll find life in the scriptures, 
Here's how Jesus defines life. In John 17, 3, the Bible always interprets the Bible. So when uh, the Bible talks about lampstands, look up what it says about lampstands throughout the whole Bible. There's all kinds of things about lampstands and how they were to build the tabernacle in the book of Exodus. In Revelation 1, verse 20, it says the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So take out the word seven. Lampstands are churches. So whenever you see a lampstand talked about in the Bible, it's one of the word pictures for the church. Because a lampstand is where you put a bunch of candles so that you can magnify the light. One candle is not going to put off as much light as, as uh, if you get a, you know, a fourfold menorah where you have uh, eight candles going four different directions so that you end up with... Uh, 29 candles, that's going to give up a lot more light than one candle, right? And that's what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5 when he says no one puts his light under a bushel, but he puts it on a lampstand. He's saying you, your, your life can't have much impact if you don't put it in Christian community. I remember... Um, the Greys really get a lot of credit for this in my mind. But uh, we started this church reaching out to a lot of inner city kids, uh, Sam Moante and uh, lot, lots of kids like that and uh, Logan. And, and uh, there was this problem that we had that, that lasted for more than 10 years in our church where there was this attitude all the time when it came to all the basic standards of God's word where, oh, well, the Weisses do that, but look, you know, they had great Christian parents and, it was, and they've got unfair advantages because they were raised in Christian households and we, we don't have that and so we can't do it. That was, that was so much the culture of our church that it was actually when the Graves first came to the church that we started being able to say, see, uh, you can do this. <laughs> this is normal Christian living. You know, it's not just uh, some super spiritual people that pray and tithe and, and read their Bibles. And, you know, that's expected of everyone. But that was a definite cultural phenomena that we were wrestling against because, you, you know, that's one of the things I love about our current situation with the, uh, you know, eight couples that are on the leadership team. Or is it seven? And one single guy, Stephen. But it's a bunch of people that do it. And, I, and I'm so blessed uh, every, every uh, week this happens to me. This happened, I, I remember I was laying in bed reading the Bible this week, and I started thinking about like the Poons and the Maddoxes and the, the Paramalas and the Haggers and the Grays and, and beyond that, you know, Bethany and Noel and all these different people who serve in our church and and do all these different things. And uh, I thought, like, this is so crazy that, like, uh, everything is handled by everybody. And so, like, I can actually read the Bible and, and pray and worship God because I don't, ha I don't, I am not, uh, this is the first church I've ever been a part of that I don't have to worry about very much because everybody steps to the plate and does it. 
And that filters through the whole church. All kind of people serve in all kind of ways. And that's how it should be. But that's seldom what, we, what Christians experience. Most pastors have to do, like, they, they mow the church lawn and they, you know, they, they clean the church bathroom and they do every single thing there is to do. And I'm just amazed because there's all kind of things happening in our church all the time that I don't even know what's going on. You know, people just do it. And it's like, wow, who thought of doing that? That was, some, and usually somebody did. And that's, you can't believe how wonderful that is for a pastor. Uh, moving on, John 10, 35b. This is a very important, but Jesus just says a little parenthetical statement. It's actually in parentheses in most English translations. And it says, and the scripture cannot be broken. Now, the word broken is from the Greek word luo, uh, lambda, upsilon, is it omega or omicron at the end? Let's see. I've got it in here somewhere. That's omega. So uh, when I was taking Greek in college, that was actually the first Greek verb I learned to conjugate. And it um, actually was a very discouraging experience because I had taken a little bit of high school Spanish and in Spanish, every verb has six conjugations, right? Uh, first, is it first? Yeah, first person, second person, and third person singular. First, second, and third person plural. That's a Spanish verb, right? In Greek, every verb has over 130 conjugations. <laughs> it can say first person, second person, third person. It can say seven different tenses, uh, singular, plural, masculine, feminine, uh, all of this by how you change the ending, but there's 130-some endings to memorize for every verse, <laughs> for every Greek verb. So this luo was the first one that I ever learned. And uh, after that, I don't think I'll ever learn anymore. But <laughs> after that, I said, that's why God made lexicons. <laughs> but um, uh so if you look there, I've got a lot of the definition used of bandages and bondages, used of husbands and wife when they're bound together in covenant. Like Jesus said, you, you know, can't un, untie the covenant. Uh, uh, it's used of binding and, un, un, and releasing evil spirits and all sorts of ways. Um, but what, what Jesus is saying is, whether even when you try to, even when there's like what we're going to study in the next 15 weeks, all the paradigms that untie and break the scripture, nevertheless, it's it, it the scripture is unbroken. In other words, like it doesn't matter if you don't believe, like you can say, I don't believe that thou shalt not kill exists for me. And guess what? If you, you'll be judged accord, according to thou shalt not kill whether you believe it or not. Right? In essence, what, what, these, uh, what a lot of these uh, ways of looking at Scripture that we're going to study, what they do is what uh, little kids do. One of my favorite stages for every little kid, I, someone could help me who knows more about kids, but I think it's around maybe six to nine months, probably closer to nine months, but every kid goes through a stage where they're really fun to play peekaboo with. Because if you, you know, they put their hands like this, uh, 
And then and you do that, and you go, peek-a-boo, and then they laugh and giggle, and then you keep doing it. And, you know, I love that you can keep kids entertained with stuff like that for half an hour. But, uh, <laughs> but be, they actually go through a developmental stage where they don't know when they put their hands over their eyes that you can't see them. They think, you can't see me because I, I have my hands over my eyes. And they haven't figured it, they haven't actually cognitively developed far enough to understand that you still see them when they have their hands over their eyes, right? Every kid goes through that stage, and they're a lot of fun during that stage, right? But in essence, that's where fallen man lives with God. Fallen man actually thinks God doesn't see me when I'm doing this or that or the other, which is, of course, not true. In the essence of growing in maturity is to unite your heart with the fear of God. And the fear of God is simply believing God does see you and you will pay. You'll be blessed if you obey and you'll be chastised as a son or daughter when you don't obey. And every sin that you're enticed by actually costs you more than the pleasure of the sin. So on balance, it's not worth it. And most Christians have lots of secret sins of alcohol and sexual things and uh, all kind of things that they're not ever actually admitting before the brothers and sisters, but that's just nonsense. Because God does see. And half the times the brothers and sisters know anyway. (laughs) And it's actually, you know, I've had situations lots of times where we're working on a situation with a, with a brother or sister or with a marriage or with whatever, uh, someone who's having some difficulties with uh, their kids or whatever. And we'll, like God will give us insight, we'll start to make some progress. And then all of a sudden we're not making progress. And I'm at a loss to know, like, why aren't we making progress? And it's always because uh, they've gone back to some kind of attitude, motivation, or behavior that they're not walking in the light about. And be, so without that information, you couldn't help them. It's, it's always 100% of the time that. And uh, so that has to do with what luo means. You cannot untie the scripture. So note one, to study or re- relate to scripture piecemeal or in parts only is a futile attempt to untie it. Now, I'm perfectly fine when you're just becoming a Christian. You got to start somewhere. Just like in real life, you don't take uh, chemistry three before you learn the alphabet. <laughs> right? You, uh, so I'm okay with someone starting, uh, say, by reading the New Testament through a few times. But... Pretty soon I'll say, while you're reading the New Testament through a few times, get on a program to read the Old Testament through a few times. And the reason we have foundational books and intermediate books, we don't have a lot of books on our list that are designed just to teach you how to pray better or something. You'll notice that we, that's not our approach. The, our books are designed to give you the right paradigms for getting more out of your scripture study and that so what happens is if you don't read 
the two book lists. One is the foundational book list. On the opposite side is the intermediate. The reason we started the discipleship groups is because we thought like 10 or 15 years ago when we taught a lot, like I actually used to get criticized and Jason Hale would come to my defense because people would get upset. Like Greg talks about why you should read the whole Bible every week. (laughs) When's he going to stop talking about that? And some people were quite nasty to me about it. So Jason Hale stood up and said, well, he'll stop talking about it when we don't need that anymore. (laughs) Right? And what we came to find out is we don't have as much of a culture of biblical studies in Grace Christian Fellowship as what the Lord has called us to. In fact, we fall far short of that, like way more than you might, than it might actually be discouraging if you knew how far short of that. And there are actually people in the church that have been in the church more than a year that haven't read all the foundational books. But the, the list is designed so you can read it the first year you come to the church. So they're, 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 all the foundational books have one criteria that the intermediate books don't have, They're easy to read so that if your reading level is challenged, you can still read them. Then the intermediate books take a little bit better reading skills and reading comprehensive skills and a little bit more vocabulary. And of course, that leads to the fact that they're usually more insightful overall. But anyone who graduated seventh grade, even in inner city schools, can read the foundational books. That's what they're just... None of them are too hard. And if you haven't come to grips with this, uh, in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says, we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, but a wisdom that's not from man or the rulers of this world or whatever. And then, then he talks about combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words because you can't learn anything without a vocabulary, Right? If, uh, if, you know, if there's any nurses in our church, nurses have their own vocabulary. Air Force people have their own little acronyms, and, you know, they're going TDY and ABC and, I don't know, and, uh, and I, you know, like, I, like, Jeff, can you tell me that in English? <laughs> you know, what do all these acronyms mean? Because every discipline, it doesn't matter if you're an engineer, a computer scientist, a busboy, uh, there's a vocabulary for it. And there's a cat vocabulary for being a Christian. And so if, you know, like people say, well, I don't like big words like soteriology. Well, then you don't like, then just tear 1 Corinthians 2 out of your Bible and throw it away. Because it says you need a vocabulary to grow in the Lord. Designed just for that. So when Jesus says the scripture cannot be broken, I, it, one of the principles of interpretation is don't assume because something's a little parenthetical statement that it's not a big deal. That's just not the case. And this, it's a little parenthetical statement and it's a big deal. Flip over. We've already mentioned a lot the upcoming teachings on... Uh, Reductionist paradigms, of, and, uh, and we'll stop with uh, Luke 24. 
beginning with Moses and all the prophets. There's that big word, all again. He interpreted or explained in some translations to them all the scriptures concerning himself. So Jesus is making it quite clear, and we'll talk about Tanakh possibly next week. I'll decide whether I want to finish this or go on because it's really, really late. Uh, But probably I will talk about the rest of this. Tanakh is kind of an important idea. But we, you know, we divide the scriptures up into um, various like sections, like the law, the historical books. So the Jews had a different way of doing that, and that. But Jesus is actually speaking to a Jewish audience, his disciples, and he, when he says, when in Luke twenty-four, when he's talking about Moses, uh, the Psalms, and so forth, he's trying to emphasize in both statements that everything in the entire Jewish scriptures is all about him. And so, you know, one of the things we try to emphasize in this church is uh, various ways of learning how to get Christ out of all the Old Testament. And one of the reasons that's important is if you're a Christian, you should also read the New Testament, of course, And actually, that's what they're doing on every page of the New Testament. Every page in the New Testament, if you're having trouble understanding it ever, what it's actually doing is it's actually teaching Christ, especially emphasizing his humanity, his sinless life, his atoning death, his resurrection, his ascension, his present reign, and... uh, in all that he prophesied about the destruction of Jerusalem and so forth, uh, all that he taught about the kingdom, and it's using the Old Testament to do that. So every, every paragraph of the New Testament is actually a way of taking, they, what they do is they take Old Testament laws, Old Testament historical narratives, uh, Old Testament symbolism, and they use it to open your eyes to see Christ. So we'll talk more about that in weeks to come. But what we tried to emphasize today, after, I, again, I talked a long time about our current situation with uh, why we as a church need to intercede and humble ourselves. Um, that came out of the scripture readings about Pentecost. Because the, ver- the most important meaning of Pentecost is that the greatest promise of God, of all the promises, flows into there will actually be harmony between all peoples uh, in Christ someday. And uh, that there's no more important message in the Bible. And then secondly, we had kind of two teachings today. Secondly, we did uh, lesson 5B. Now it's like 5B little 1 because I didn't get through the Tanakh part and I have to decide whether I want to talk about that more. But um, and that's something you could talk to me in person about too. Or I may just make a little teaching and stick it on the website because uh, I don't know if I want to do a whole message on that and, and spend a, slow us down. But uh, we, we tried to look at a few things about what Jesus had to say about the Scripture. And uh, as a Christian, 
Of course, we always need to be concerned about with the whole Bible. But it is really also important to kind of think in terms of, you know, what did Jesus have to say about this? Uh, I think you should ask that question of, of a lot of things. And uh, in terms of what Jesus said about the whole scripture, that's, that's what we looked at a little bit today. So let's uh, get, uh, is it John Gray's turn? Let's get him up here. <clears throat> 